This morning is the second week in our December Advent series titled, Why Jesus Came. And uh, today's message is simply the title, Sent by the Father. Jesus came because he was sent by the Father. So I'd like to ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word. Please read with me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And then from 1 John 4, and we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. So Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truths that we're going to look at this morning. And we would ask the Spirit of God to be our instructor, our teacher, our counselor, the one who would convict us and motivate us and reveal to us the glory of our great God. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Some of you are familiar with the phrase, the meeting before the meeting. You ever been a part of one of those? The meeting before the meeting. Uh, You have an important meeting coming up, but beforehand you need to meet with others to go over everything that you'll be saying at the big meeting. Um, Our second son, Josh, is one of the directors for Bridgestone Corporate down in Nashville. He has more meetings in a week, it seems like, than most of us would ever be able to survive. But always before a big meeting where he has to present before the president of the company, he'll have numerous meetings before the meeting to make sure that all of his ducks are in a row, so to speak. And of course, in the world of politics, uh, think of the dozens and hundreds of meetings that go in, that go on in the corridors of the Capitol before a meeting in the Oval Office or prior to meeting with the entire House or Senate. Meetings before the meeting. Now, as best as you can, try and transition that thought to the corridors of heaven. Have you ever wondered what the meetings might have been like that may have taken place before the foundation of the world between the three persons of the triune Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, in orchestrating the plan of redemption that we have in this book called the Bible. There were meetings before the meeting, or to tie in with today's message, there were meetings before the sending, before the sending of the Son. What were the interactions between God the Father and God the Son like? Leading up to what John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world, God the Father so loved the world, that he sent his Son. Or 1 John 4, The Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. What were those divine conversations? See, I have to believe that they occurred. Because we're talking about a personal relationship that has existed throughout eternity The one God delighting in perfect loving fellowship in himself, in the three persons of Father, Son, and Spirit. God the Father had purposed in his heart to make for himself a people for his own possession, 
from the very people that he had created and who had betrayed him. And the plan would require the sending of his only son, the Son of God. Now, the New Testament is replete with statements making it very clear that it was the Father who sent the Son, that the Son of God would be sent out on a mission from heaven, that it could not be accomplished by any other means or any other person, not by angels, even though God had at his disposal 10,000 times 10,000 times 10,000 angels. He could have sent the angels, but no, he didn't choose that because they would not be sufficient for the task. Nor could it be accomplished by any of the Old Testament men and women who all had been given assignments leading up to the sending of his son. That's all your Old Testament. People who were given tasks to perform, messages to bring. Noah could build an ark that was used to save his family, but he couldn't save humanity. Moses was used by God to deliver the Israelites from bondage in Egypt, but he couldn't deliver the human race from bondage to sin and death. Take all the rest of them, Samson, Elijah, Ruth, Esther, King David, all the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Ezekiel. Maybe if God could send all of them at once instead of spread out throughout history, send them all on a global blitz of all the nations, give them all the power to do miracles, all the inspiration to preach amazing sermons, maybe that would be sufficient to get the job done. No, it wouldn't be. The only one who would qualify for the job was the Son of God himself. Now, Jesus wanted for it to be very clear that he had not come of his own accord, but that he had been sent by the Father, and that then he, in his submission, had agreed to come. In John's gospel alone, over 30 times, Jesus makes reference to that fact, that he was sent. For example, John 7, I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true. I know him, for I have come from him, and he sent me. 7.33, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. John 8, I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. John 9, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. John 13, whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. And that's just a a sample of the many times that Jesus made that clear. Now this morning what I'd like to do is for us to think about two very basic questions that when answered will help us to worship God even more during this Christmas season. The two questions are these. What was it that motivated God to send his own son? And secondly, why did the son agree to come? What was it that motivated the father? And why would the son agree to come on such a mission? The first question. What was it that motivated? What was it that compelled God the father to go to such extreme measures as to send his beloved son. We're going to look at this first question from two vantage points, the divine and the human. First of all, what was it in the heart of God that would motivate him to do this? And the answer is that it was his compassion. The compassion of God. 
led him to do this. Psalm 86, 15, you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. See, friends, that's where it all begins. It has to begin in the heart of God. Worthy eternal God, you've got to think with me for a couple of minutes. Worthy eternal God of heaven and earth, not compassionate. If he was not a merciful God, that would be the end of the story as we know it. Think about it for a minute. He creates the universe. He fills it with billions of galaxies. In this one galaxy is this little thing that we know as planet Earth. Then he inhabits that planet with people made in his image. He makes himself known to them through everything that he has made. He abundantly provides for their every need. He gives them some very basic commandments that they're to obey. But instead they disobey. Not just Adam and Eve, but every one of us ever since Adam and Eve. They willfully rebel against God. They betray him. They turn their backs on him. Everyone going his or her own way. And in light of all that, if God was only a law-giving, law-keeping, world-policing God, then the story of mankind would be over, finished. God would have annihilated the human race and moved on to some other divine project that would give him glory. The whole drama involving Homo sapiens would have been chalked up as a disaster if, if God was not filled with mercy and compassion. We're going to put up on the screen a simple diagram of the attributes of God that are revealed to us in the Bible. He's all wise. He's just. He's omnipresent, omniscient. He knows all things. Omnipotent, all power, knowledge. Knows everything about everything and all of the others. He's a jealous God. He's a truth-telling God. He's full of truth. And he's to be blessed and he's holy. He's also a God of love and a God of mercy. But what if you were to remove those two circles from that diagram? What would you have left? You'd have an amazing God. You'd have a God that should be worshipped. But he would not be a God of love or mercy. You remember what God declared to Moses about himself in the wilderness? Exodus 34. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Now, if mercy and love were taken away like that previous diagram showed, what might God have declared to Moses? What if it said this? The Lord, the Lord, a God omnipotent and all-knowing, quick to be jealous and abounding in justice and wrath. How does that sound to you? How does that sound? It'd be true. You see, friends, we're often guilty of taking God's compassion for granted. We take his mercy for granted with little or no thought given to what it would have been like had the reverse been our reality. 
If God was not merciful and gracious, if God was not slow to anger, if God was not abounding in steadfast love, there would be no good news. There would be no gospel. There would be no, for unto you is born this day in the city of David, proclamation from the angels. There would be no Christmas. And as a result, there would be no Good Friday. There would be no Resurrection Sunday. There would be dread, fear, panic, despair. You could say that instead of the fear of the walking dead, there would be the fear of the stalking God. God stalking the earth. You see, friends, it was God's compassion that motivated him to look upon the world and purpose in his heart to work out a plan that would involve the unimaginable. I mean, Peter even says the angels long to look into these things because they can't believe that God would do what he did. The angels can't believe that God would go to such measures. God sending his beloved son It's out of compassion. Psalm 103, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Over in James, you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. I was reading in Nehemiah this morning in my Through the Bible reading plan, and uh, if you want a chapter... Just jot this down. Nehemiah chapter 9 is a chapter that captures the entire biblical story with the overarching theme, if it weren't for the mercy of God. It's the mercy of God all the way through that chapter. So that's that's answering our first question from God's vantage point. On the flip side, from God's mercy, that which so desperately needed God's mercy was what? What? Man's condition, the condition of humanity that would cause God to go such extreme measures as to send his son. Again, the Bible's abundantly clear on this from beginning to end. I could show you a myriad of verses, but I'll pick out just a few. Judges, Judges 17.6. This is description of us. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Isaiah 53 All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one of us to his own way. Romans 3, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The verse that we read together at the beginning of the service, John 3, 17, says God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, But that's what we had coming. God could have justifiably sent his son into the world to condemn the world. See, friends, you and I are found guilty on all counts. We are found guilty of every crime imaginable against God. God could have thrown the book at us. He could have thrown the entirety of the commandments at us. You shall not have any other gods before me, guilty. You shall not make for yourself anything that you bow down to and serve and worship, guilty. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, guilty. You shall practice Sabbath rest, guilty. You shall honor your father and your mother. Did you ever dishonor your parents? Guilty. You shall not murder, a.k.a. hate. 
You shall not commit adultery from the lustful eye to the illicit affair. You shall not steal. How about robbing God of his glory? You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet anything of your neighbors. Anything. Guilty, 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 and guilty. And as a result, our condition deserved only God's judgment. Romans 1, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. No honor given, no thanks expressed, no recognition that God is God. And so as a result, man's condition is desperate. Deserving the wrath of a holy God. So the abbreviated answer to that first question, what was it that motivated God to do such a thing as to send his son It was the combination of God's unfailing compassion, his love and his mercy, and at the same time, man's desperately wicked condition. You put those two things together, and you have God sending his son. Now the second question. Why did the son agree to come? When this plan was drawn up, why did the son agree to come? Why did he agree with the plan? Remember when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane? He was gonna, knew that death was approaching. He said, Father, if there's any other way, if there's any other way. I just wonder if that conversation was had in the heavenlies before the foundation of the world. Father, is there any other plan? The Father said, this is it. I mean, he would be leaving the glory that he had shared with the Father in the heavenly realms for all eternity. He'd be leaving the Father's immediate presence. He'd be leaving his honored position at the Father's right hand with myriads of angels worshiping at his feet and then coming to this minuscule dot in the universe that we know as planet Earth, inhabited by people whose hearts, intentions were only evil all the time and agreeing to then take on our creatureliness, our flesh and bone. John 1.14, the word became flesh. The eternal word of God became flesh. The son of God became flesh and dwelt among us. Philippians 2, he was in the form of God, but he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped tightly. But he, the son of God, emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Why? First of all, because he wanted to do the Father's will. God the Father had determined a plan that would perfectly satisfy his demand for justice on the one hand and manifest his mercy and love on the other. And the key player in the Father's plan was the Son. And the Son said to the Father, Father, I want to do your will. I love you that much, and I know your love for me. It is a love that we have enjoyed for all eternity. I want to do your will. John 4, Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. John 6, I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me, my father's will. 
The Son of God agreed with the Father's plan because he wanted to do the Father's will. Secondly, he agreed because he wanted to display the Father's nature for all the world to see. He wanted everybody to see how amazing the Father is. See, the Son of God God was given an assignment that had never been given to anyone else in history to show the world what God is like in all his fullness. Think about it. Everyone who had been sent or commissioned by God before Christ, Noah, Abraham, Moses, Isaiah, Daniel, all the rest, they were all emissaries. They were messengers. And so in their humanity, all they could do was deliver a message or fulfill a task a human task given to them by God. And they did. But the assignment given to the Son was to perfectly display the nature of God with nothing missing. See, how do you do that? How do you display the nature of an, of an invisible God? By taking on human form, by being incarnated. We would have never come up with that plan. If you had taken the hundred most brilliant people in the history of the world and said, come up with a plan for revealing the nature of God in all of his fullness, man would have never come up with this plan. He would take on human form. He would be incarnated so that people could see and listen and observe and marvel at this person who was fully God and fully man at the exact same time. And John attempts to capture this mystery when he writes in John 1.18, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. The only God, the only begotten Son of God who is at the Father's side, He has made God known. And so Jesus would say in John 12, what an amazing statement. Whoever sees me sees Him who sent me. No one had ever been able to make such a statement as that. If you see me, you see the Father. But I think it was this conversation with Philip in John 14 that just really nailed it. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. But the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or else believe on account of the works themselves. And Paul wrote to the church in Colossae of Christ. He is the image of the invisible God. See, we're made in the image of God, right? We're all made in the image of God. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the image. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So the son agreed to come because he wanted to show the father's nature and glory to those who had of eyes to see.
Another reason why the son agreed to come was to demonstrate the depth of God's love. To demonstrate the depth of God's love, the magnitude of God's love. See, it's one thing for God to tell, tell us that he loves us, to use words. It's another, another thing entirely to show us that love. How are you going to do that? How do you show love? How do you show love? By doing something. How do you show extreme love? By doing something extreme. And so it couldn't just be by sending the son. That wouldn't be sufficient. Think with me. The father could have sent the son on a mission of conquest, sent to conquer the devil and all the forces of darkness. But that wouldn't have displayed his love. He could have been sent to set up a whole new world order with the all-wise, all-powerful, all-knowing son of God ruling from every world capital around the globe, all at the same time. Jesus on the throne, Jesus in the Oval Office, Jesus ruling and reigning from every world capital. But that wouldn't have displayed his love. No, the ultimate demonstration of the magnitude of the love of God would be for the Father to send his Son on a mission calling for the ultimate sacrifice. For the Son to bear the sins of the world and the punishment for those sins by being slaughtered as a sacrifice. The Father would send his Son to take your place and mine. Jesus said to his disciples before his crucifixion, John 15, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Paul to the Romans, while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. One will scarcely die for a righteous person. How many of you would die for a righteous person? Perhaps for a good person, one would dare to die. But, but God shows his love for us in that while we were not righteous people, while we were still sinners, that's when Christ died for us. John wrote so eloquently in 1 John 4, in this the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, meaning the atoning sacrifice for our sins. That's why the son of God agreed to come, to demonstrate the father's love. There would be no way for us to know the love of God had Jesus not done this. We would not know the depth of the Father's love, the magnitude of the Father's love, had the Son of God not agreed to the plan. Let's imagine for a minute that I have the opportunity to save all the people in greater St. Louis from perishing. West County, South County, North County, City, East St. Louis, rich, poor, young, old, Black, white, brown, yellow. Some of those people are decent, decent folks and some of them are miserable people. 
gang members, prostitutes, pimps, drug dealers. I have the opportunity to save all of them from perishing. But it will require me sending one of my sons. He has to leave home. He has to go live with them for two or three decades. Many of whom are wicked and dangerous to be around. He will be abused by them in every imaginable way. And then he will be beaten and mocked and tortured. And he will die an excruciating death and will be left on the streets of St. Louis. But by his death, hundreds of thousands of people will be spared the wrath of God. And my, my son agrees to the plan. Make it personal. It's your son. It's your daughter. It's your niece or your nephew. You're able to save thousands upon thousands of people, but it will require not you sacrificing your life. That'd be easy. Me give my life, fine. If that means saving all of St. Louis, I'll do it. If that was possible, sure. But for me to sacrifice the life of one of my children whom I love, and then for him to agree to go because they love me so much, You see, friends, you've got you to make this emotionally real for you to get into the heart of God the Father and God the Son in devising such a plan and then agreeing to the plan. Whatever else you know about God, make sure you know He is like that. Another reason the Son of God agreed to the plan was because he wanted to come and declare the good news that the Father had given him to declare. It wasn't just his actions, it was also his words. The Son of God came preaching and teaching, declaring good news, proclaiming. He came with a message. In the midst of all of Jesus' words was the message of good news, the gospel. It began with the angelic nighttime announcement given to those unsuspecting men in Judea. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And then 30 years later, Jesus would introduce his ministry basically the same way. It says he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel, the good news of the reign of God in the hearts of men and women. The gospel of the kingdom. The son of God's mission, his assignment from the father, was to proclaim all the words that the father gave him to proclaim. See, the son of God did not speak on his own authority. Jesus did not speak on his own authority. He gave the message that the father had given to him to deliver. Proclaiming the good news of the reign and rule of God. Jesus says, I have not spoken on my own authority. The father who sent me has given me a commandment what to say, and what to speak. All that I have heard from the Father, I have made known to you. That's what fundamentally occupied his days for those three years, teaching and preaching, 
Teaching and preaching, teaching and preaching. Few miracles scattered in there, just to confirm that it was, he was the son of God. But mostly it was, it was a ministry of, of, of preaching and teaching from one town to the next to the next. Said in Luke 4, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And I would just say here briefly, brothers and sisters, this must be our occupation as well. Our faith is a faith of words, not just actions. Thank God for the actions. Thank God for what so many of you did yesterday with all of those foster families. Thank God for those. Thank God for CIA and Operation Christmas Child and all the rest. Thank God for all the expressions of love that we practice. We are called to live the life of Christ for others to see. But we are also called to speak the words of Christ for others to hear. Living a good life by itself has never brought anyone to salvation. At some point, there must always be words. See, there are lots of good people living good lives, but the majority of those good people living good lives do not have the name of Jesus on their lips. That's our job. We need to agree with the Apostle Paul who said that we need not be ashamed of the gospel. For it's the power of God for salvation. Let me give you two more reasons why the Son of God agreed with the Father's plan. He agreed with the Father's plan because it meant destroying the works of the devil. He came to destroy the works of the devil. That's an amazing thing. See, a vital part of his mission was to deal a fatal blow to Satan, the father of lies, the deceiver of the brethren, the one whose objective is to steal and kill and destroy. He was to deal a death blow to the one who accuses God's people, who proliferates spiritual blindness, the one who oppresses and takes people captive. The Son of God came not only to deliver and rescue people from Satan's grip, he came to ultimately destroy him. Hebrews 2. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, He himself likewise partook of the same, flesh and blood. Why? So that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. John says it again in 1 John 3. And so the tiny baby lying in the manger in Bethlehem would prove to be the ultimate demise of Satan. And while the forces of darkness are still being granted by a sovereign God the freedom to work evil in our world, their days are numbered because the Son of God came. You need to know that. You need to know that your enemy has been defeated. You need to know that greater is he who is in you than he that is in the world. What does that mean? It means you don't have to listen to his lies this week. You don't have to give in to his temptations this week. You don't have to follow his ways this week. You don't have to absorb his accusations into your soul this week. He will try to do all those things to you. He will accuse. He will deceive. He will lie. He will tempt. The Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. Praise God. And lastly, the Father sent the Son, and the Son agreed to come in order to deliver the gift, to bring the gift of eternal life for all who believe. 
This time of the year, it's always fun for little kids when the UPS or the FedEx truck comes pulling up in front of your house. And it comes and drops off that big box from Grandma and Grandpa or Aunt Bob or Aunt, Aunt Mary and Uncle Bob. Yeah, Aunt Bob. That is the generation in which we live. <laughs> Hate to say it. <laughs> yeah. Let's hope not. And inside that box, <laughs> inside that box, you're going to be laughing about that the rest of the day, aren't you? What did you remember about Pastor Gary's sermon? Aunt Bob. Inside that box are gifts that will all go under the tree just waiting to be opened. You know, gifts are wonderful things, aren't they? Gifts are just wonderful things. You don't deserve them. You can't earn them. You just receive them. You open them up, you take them out, and you receive them with gratitude to the one who has sent them. Friends, the greatest of all gifts was sent by the Father to planet Earth and delivered by the Son in the packaging of a young woman. And it would be delivered down an eight-inch birth canal and would come bursting into our world with a cry, For God so loved the world that he gave the gift of his son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the son to condemn us. No, God the Father out of his love sent the son to save us. We have a savior. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know, that you may know that you have eternal life. Why did Jesus come? Because he was sent. And because he loved God the Father. He wanted to do his will. He wanted to demonstrate for the world what God is like so that when you see Jesus, you see the Father. He wanted to destroy the works of your enemy, the devil. He wanted to, to deliver you and rescue you from condemnation and wrath, which you deserved. And he wanted to give you the greatest of all gifts. Let's pray together. With your heads bowed, please just take a minute and respond in your heart to whatever God has been saying to you this morning. It might be an expression of praise, gratitude. Maybe it's humbling yourself before him. Maybe for you it's saying, God, I, I need your son. I need a savior. My condition is not good. I've got boatloads of sin. I really truly deserve to be punished. But I've now learned that Jesus took my punishment. 
and so I want to live for him and follow him and trust in him. If you've never done it before, give your life to Christ today. Receive him, believe in him, become a child of God. Thank you, Father. Thank you, God, Father, Son, and Spirit for devising such a plan in the heavenlies. Thank you, Father, for such great, great love that you would be willing to send the Son whom you loved. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for agreeing to the Father's plan. Thank you for coming. Thank you for living. Thank you for dying. We needed a Savior. Every one of us in this room needed a Savior. Some of you have moms and dads who need a Savior. Some of you have brothers and sisters who need a Savior. Some of you have sons and daughters who need a Savior. In this, the love of God was made manifest, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the savior of the world.